Hello, hello. Howdy doody. We're back. I'm Zach. Yeah, I am Chris. And this is Intername here. Welcome back. Your favorite. Yep. Yep. A lot of your favorites too. Yeah, some some of you even some of you even your number one favorite. That's right. Thanks. Yeah. We found out. Yeah. Spotify gave us our rap. Got narked out on. (laughs) Didn't Um, give us names though. This is Intername here, as you know. Uh uh, Follow us on Facebook, Intername Here. It's that way. Instagram, Intername Here Podcast. And Intername Here, <clears throat> here Podcast at gmail.com. Yes. Send us more hate mail. <laughs> yeah, more we got some hate mail. mail finally. And then some love mail to re- respond to that. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you, you person. You know who you are. Chris had tears pouring down <laughs> his eyes, and I said, Sir, <laughs> you can't cry. Sir, there's no crying in podcasting. There's no crying in emails. (laughs) Anyway, so today we're going to go with, well, we precursor this because we decided on this week's topic, I guess, because of uh, Chris and I are going to have a bro date vacation coming up. We're going to be going to uh, Washington, D.C. Washington, (laughs) D.C. And, uh, you know, one of the more famous places in lots of places in Washington, yeah. The Smithsonian, so we decided to. That's our theme of the theme week. Theme as the Smithsonian, so you know these are some sort of exhibit or something involved with the Smithsonian. Something one way related or another. to mine is uh, more loosely related, I think, than what yours is going to be, based on what we've told one another. Yep, which is not much. Chris Don't is going to give us an audio tour in Italian <laughs> of what you would hear at the. Um, Air and Space Museum. Yeah, a bit of an avant-garde approach <laughs> yeah, to my topic. Yeah, it's a little different than normal. <laughs> so if you don't know Italian, <laughs> sit back out, and enjoy. Try out Babel, not a sponsor. <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, but before we go to the Smithsonian and our bro date weekend trip, we're going to go see some football, so it's not like completely like not. Not completely bro date yeah not a week i don't know it could be a bro date at a football game that's right yeah. gonna be holding hands cheering for the cowboys <laughs> well we'll see about that <laughs> well like you know I'm we'll gonna, see i'm not gonna be There'll cheering be pictures anyway yeah I mean, so i don't think we'll need to cheer them on <laughs> but i don't think so either anyway so um a little bit different area of the country but you know maybe it's a little kind of bro date shocking video Oh. Which we can't see. It's not that shocking. Where is this again? I haven't even said. Oh, okay. It's in the oh. Disneyland, and uh, oh, California. Yeah, and this guy was uh, 26 year old. Was arrested after clips showed him stripping down and roaming around the worst ride in the history of the world <laughs> oh, on so he's Sunday at Disneyland. Yes, in <laughs> Disneyland. Um, he was in. It's a small world. Oh, the ride, which wow. it's definitely not. You don't need to go the, on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, people go on it because it's the classic ride. Right. But it's it. You you could see why this guy'd probably strip off his clothes and run around. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I can. Like, <laughs> there's uh, they, they say shocking videos. It's a guy like he's tripping his balls out. Is what it looks like to me. Uh, like he's on some drugs. Yeah, and he's like climbing around and sitting in the water wearing his underwear. And eventually, he takes off his underwear and like is outside of the where the ride <laughs> of the water goes through a little part near you know part of the park. Right. And uh, is he scooting along or is no? He he's like jumps into the water. At one point, he got behind one of the boats and was pushing it while he was like in the water. <laughs> 
But he gets into the water butt-ass naked, and this dude has the dirtiest butt ever. Oh. I mean, it's like dirty from a distance. <laughs> you know, somebody's 75 yards away, and this guy, you can see his dirty butt. Oh, but anyways, wow. the uh, they end up arresting him, but there's... Uh, People people are videotaping while they're inside the ride, and there's like, it's a small world song is playing in the background, and like you see how slow the the car is going by, and you're like, that's how fast it goes. So you're in there for like ever. Oh man, um, so you have plenty of time to see what's going on. This this lady said they were stuck on the uh, ride for about an hour and fifteen minutes. Oh, thankfully we we're safe. Um, yeah, he uh, one guy's yelling this videotaping idiot in front of all these kids. As they're dragging, the security's dragging him out. So they, they just basically had like something draped over him as they're dragging this naked guy, who's end up they they found, uh, substance, controlled substances in his system. So yeah. he's arrested for indecent exposure and being under the influence of controlled substance. Ugh. So weirdly, not in Florida. This was in the Disneyland in Anaheim. So oh man, man, wow. So, but if you want to check out the video, it's just like ten seconds. You don't have much to so say. He about jumps that. in and like he's got the crustiest butt ever. It's hilarious. He's been celebrating Brown Friday. Yeah, I don't know if he's you know who knows what he was on. He had to. He, I mean, he seemed like he could have been drunk, but he had to have been on something because he was like patting the the little uh, animatronics on the head and everything you know wow well. sitting in the water like with his knees up and his arms around his knees like staring at the people riding by on their little boat you know like he was tripping balls Anyways. yeah it sounds like maybe some lsd <laughs> yeah good old-fashioned lsd yeah not a sponsor yeah not a sponsor indeed um so yeah that's uh, be careful on your trips yeah, I mean, if, One, both kinds, your vacations yeah, and your other trips. Probably shouldn't go to Disneyland doing it, just saying. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I guess it could be kind of cool. I mean, I could see the or appeal, maybe, but there's a uh, lot of families around. Yeah, I mean, that's just not the place to. <laughs> if there weren't families around, if you could close the park down, yeah, perfect. Sure. Do you know, like when Tom to Cruise goes, you could trip balls because he's going and the park's empty. Right, yeah. Or Rod Stewart. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a pretty good mashup of celebrities there. Yeah, Tom Cruise and Rod Stewart. They go together. Yeah, they ride all the rides together. (laughs) Oh, Lord. That's this weekend TMZ. (laughs) Uh, So anyways. Yeah, don't fact check that one. This one one is from Ohio, though, and this was a tasty accident. Is Tom Cruise involved? No, probably not, but these two trucks... Um, two semi trucks covered the roadway on uh, Ohio Highway. Ohio Highway. In boxes of chocolate and caramel. Oh. Um, yeah. One of its lo- one of the trucks spilled its load of chocolate and caramel candy into the roadway. No injuries were reported. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were just like candy bars all over, the, or like oh, wow. big bags of like you know commercial use chocolate and Gosh, caramel. Hop out and fill a bag yeah i think they were you know i don't think it was like liquefied which would be right you know yeah i mean i'm hoping for some uh you know just knock off a hunk of it and stick it in your mouth (laughs) chew on it (laughs) while you're sitting on the road in traffic yeah yeah just fill a trash another another good event that we've brought to you here (laughs) yeah enter name here yeah how does i guess loot spilled chocolate 
That's this week's story. <laughs> that was a hell of a news story. Yeah. Of course, I didn't bring anything newsworthy. Yeah. I mean, everything was so bad this week. I was looking for news, and I was like, you know, I don't want to talk about any of this. There were no, like, cute <clears throat> animal stories I could find or anything see, all fun I like that. I see like, like, bear stories and stuff anymore. Yeah. Or, like, this mystery person won the lottery, just happened to buy a ticket when they went to buy a soda. And it's like, wow. Or like, guy, guy wants a pe- bag of peanuts and buys lottery ticket wins. Yeah. It's like, is that a story? I mean, yeah, but. Yeah, it's just a way so now the thieves know where the lottery winners are. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's not much of a story. I mean, I guess now we're making it one. So, you know, it gives That's us something to do. talk about. Yeah, but yeah, all the news was just bad and, you know, I'm sure there was something out there, but it, all the bad news turned me off so much that I couldn't really. Well, here's good news. Mm-hmm. These Australian dudes, blokes maybe. Blokes. Mates. <laughs> two blokes. <clears throat> they broke a Guinness World Record. I know we talk about World Records sometimes. Yeah, so. yeah. They went to 99 bars over the course of 24 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Koros and Jake Loiterton. Oh, boy. Which, which is a great name for a guy that's yeah, going to a bunch of bars. Loiterton. Loiterton. <laughs> Both 26 had drinks at 99 Sydney bars. Over the course of the day to break the Guinness World that's, Record for most p- pubs that, visited. That's 99 drinks, right? <clears throat> well, <laughs> they'd aim for 100 pubs but stopped at 99 due to a counting error. I wonder why. Um, wow. Since they faced numerous challenges over the course of their pub crawl, including being turned away from some establishments that did not want them re- recording video inside. And one guy <clears throat> puked two hours into the attempt. Oh, and then, like, okay. so, yeah, you could rally for 22 more hours. <laughs> oh. um, they said, while well, we pl- initially planned to have an a- alcoholic drink at every second pub and having a non-alcoholic drinks at alter- alternating pubs, we quickly changed this plan. <laughs> <laughs> With Sydney's strict intoxication laws, we realized we needed to keep from being too inebriated so that we were let into all the pubs. Wow. They did it to raise money for multiple sclerosis research, which is cool. Okay. But All right. I, I can't think of any better way to raise awareness for multiple sclerosis than <laughs> to have just two drunk guys <laughs> wandering on a bar crawl. Yeah, I mean, who thought that was a good idea? The picture at the beginning is them, like, both holding drinks, like, hey, here we go. And then at the <laughs> end, like, w- one guy's got his thumb up and their hats are on. His hat is backwards now. He's lost his sunglasses. <laughs> And the other guy's like leaning on his shoulder with his head like over. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. 99 bars later. 24 hours, yeah. 99 bars. God. Man. The counting. Those Aussies like to drink. I mean, that's, uh, that's impressive. <clears throat> Even though they didn't get an alcoholic drink at every bar, that's still 99 bars. Like, you drank a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, especially if you had 99 you started... sodas in 24 hours, <laughs> yeah, you're going to be mean, feeling rough. 99 of much anything, really. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, there's only so much a, a body can take, man. Don't do 99 of nothing. That's probably a good way to live life. Yeah, not doing 99 of anything. Don't do 99 of nothing. <laughs> Going to get that tattooed. Don't do 99 <clears throat> of nothing. On your forehead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So no 99 of nothing. I guess that's some news for the week. Yeah, hopefully, if hopefully it was entertaining. News, yeah, if you want to call that was, news, then please. It's one of our better efforts, I think. Probably not. <laughs> we go back and check out past episodes and see us fail we, over and over again. We do normally bring a better bit of news. So, I mean, I think everybody could forgive us for... That's all right. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was bad either. I did bring a 
uh, hey, I just found this out. What is that? <clears throat> Tell us more. Hey, I just found this out. Good job. He tattooed that on me. <laughs> In, um... It's not related at all to the story I'm going to tell tonight, but while researching it, I did find this story on um, Atlas Obscura. Ever heard of it? I have. Yep, yep. The, um, it's called Beware the Christmas Cannibal of France. Ooh. So it's how a whip-wielding butcher became St. Nick's sidekick. Hmm. I was like, hmm, I don't think I've heard this. this I've heard is of in Krampus. France? Yeah, it's in France. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Excuse me. It's a sex slave? It's a a butcher, a man with a whip, and a jolly bishop walk into a bar. This is not, in fact, the opening line of a twisted joke. It's preparation for the biggest day of the year in Nancy, an elegant city in France's Lorraine region. So they have this thing called uh, St. Nicholas Day. It's celebrated across um, Europe on December 6th, apparently, which that was just, what, a couple days ago from when we were recording this. Um, So, uh... There's a there's a crowd awaiting in um sorry <laughs> I'm butchering this so we're in Nancy a town in France on Saint Nicholas Day December sixth so there's a crowd um, they're watching three children knock on the door of a local butcher only to be chopped up into little pieces and left to cure in a salting pot falling snowflakes are replaced with chunks of veal so they're watching this show on the side of a building actually at okay. this festival for Saint Nicholas Day and it's celebrating um like I said the uh like the evil sidekick to saint nicholas so um you might be wondering what this gruesome scene has to do with saint nicholas who is the predecessor of santa claus often throughout europe saint nicholas is said to be accompanied by an evil nemesis designed to frighten children into good behavior germany has hans trapp holland has zorte piet never heard of that one and austria is best known for the krampus a horned beast with the that charges the crowd with threatening roars in the lorraine region of france saint nicholas companion is called pierre foutard (laughs) which i know i'm pronouncing that wrong i bet you the name of the town isn't nancy either (laughs) probably not (laughs) that's why i'm cracking up too it is pronounced france though we it is that. pronounced france at least in english (laughs) but the they uh call saint nicholas companion uh Pierre Foutard, we'll just say, meaning Father Whipper or Father Flog. He has a bit of a kinky vagabond look, wearing ragged clothes, donning a straggly black beard, and carrying a whip and chain. He does sound kind of scary. He's also a butcher, and he attempts to eat children. So he's this, like, evil cannibal dude. <laughs> wow. And so how did, um, you know, how did he get paired with St. Nicholas? And so it starts over 1,500 years ago, apparently, and the origin of... with the origin of Santa Claus and evolved over the centuries thanks to a miraculous medieval battle in France. So, yeah, it's um, widely believed that St. Nicholas was from the present-day Turkey, or Turkey, I I can't pronounce it again. He was likely the Bishop of Mira, born towards the end of the 4th century in Patara. Never heard of any of these places. Oh, yeah? Yeah, are they fictional? Oh, It's said sure. he performed miracles as an infant and during his life. The bishop died on December 6, 343. It was believed his body produced an oil that held healing properties, which scientists believe was actually just water from the damp tomb. In the 11th century, merchants from Italy launched a quest to ret- retrieve his body, and they were successful, and the bishop's remains were exhumed and brought to Bari, yet another place I'd never heard of. So it's like the water was like when they have one of those, like, 
weeping Jesus statues, and everybody comes and right. drinks the water, and then they find out it's like a sewer line that was behind it. It busted. <laughs> They're just all drinking duty water. <laughs> Is that what I happened mean, here? Yeah. Huh. And it was a guy dressed as a dominatrix. <laughs> right. And rather than getting them sick somehow, they became healthier from drinking duty water. They're totally a dominatrix, though. Yeah. Wearing all black and with whips yeah, and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Like, um, but somebody's somebody's <laughs> grandma got caught Christmas time, and they had to create this story. During uh, the First Crusade, 1096 to 99, a lord of Lorraine raided St. Nicholas's tomb in Italy, severed the tip of his finger, brought it back to his French homeland, and built a church to house the relic in St. Nicholas de Port. The saint, therefore, became highly revered throughout Lorraine. A few centuries later, St. Nicholas is thought to have saved the people of the region during battle, and in 1476, I'm going to give a history lesson here. Let me get back to the good part, though. <laughs> <clears throat> the story of Pierre Futard, Futard comes from another battle in Lorraine. In 1552, Charles V, King of Spain and Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, laid siege to the neighboring city of Metz. Citizens created a grotesque effigy of Charles V, which they paraded through the streets before publicly burning it. Made by whip-wielding tanners, the effigy became known as Father Whipper, an enemy of St. Nicholas. At some point along the way, the figure gets mixed in with a sprinkle of cannibalism. Another legend tells of a butcher named Pierre Lenore, who chopped up three unfortunate children. He left them the marriage in a barrel for seven years before he received a knock at the door and a surprised visitor, a hungry St. Nicholas, who the butcher recognized instantly. So they kept so, him in the barrel like those serial killers from Australia right, that I was yeah. talking about. <laughs> so yeah, he's huh. uh, basically like the Krampus of, of France, he's apparently. Like a, he's like a Krampus, Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> um, dominatrix right. combo. It's like if you're not well behaved, he's going to come get you, chop you up, and put you in a barrel. After he whips you a few times. <laughs> After he whips you. <laughs> and, and totally in a non-sexual way. So yeah, Pierre Futard, huh. Father Whipper. Father Whipper. Yeah. Futard. I wonder if they we'll get where they get the whippersnapper. I wonder if that's where that comes from. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say I doubt it. Probably not, but yeah. I, I, if it's from France, I doubt it's Whipper either. It's like Whippy A or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I butchered a lot of things in, the, in that telling. We apologize to the yeah. Frenchman that's listening. <laughs> yeah, you just have a lot to look forward to me telling that's right, my story tonight, I, I, I yeah, guess. An yeah. Italian that's coming up. I'm getting all tongue-tied and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's why. It was just hard for you to learn two <laughs> two languages this week. Yeah, my story comes straight out of America uh, tonight, all so, right. but we'll move we'll, We'll let you talk a little bit. Okay, next. well, give me a rest. Hey, I just found this out. <laughs> hey, I did because we were talking about the Smithsonian, so I wanted to find out about the Smithsonian. Right? There's 21 different museums and research in, uh, places. Oh wow, 21! And have 21 museums and the National Zoo. Okay. And then that's just the museum. Then there's tons of research facilities too. So um, they've got two new museums approved. And are planning uh, the American Women's History Museum and the National Museum of the American Latino. Oh, all right. So those will be in the next four or five years, probably opened. So, well, well make it twenty-three. Crossed. Yeah, um, twenty-four if you count the zoo as a museum. Right, a zoo museum. <clears throat> a museum. <laughs> museum. Um, what do you think the annual budget is for the? Uh, Oh, Lord. For the uh, Smithsonian. <laughs> I don't know, because it also relies a lot on uh, donations and stuff, yeah. too, right? 62% so. of the uh, Smithsonian is federally funded. Everything else is on, oh, wow. like, 
Okay, so it's probably not a, a large number compared to other things. Right. Well, yeah, but it's the government. Right. How much do you think it is? Oh. The budget for the Smithsonian. Three billion. Yeah, it's a billion. A billion, all right. And here's a fun fact, though. The military budget averages out to around $2.4 billion per day. Per day? Yeah. So the annual budget of the Smithsonian is a little over $1 billion. So Wow. You know, it's like, well, we'll just not pay for the military on November 12th. <laughs> but we'll also pay for it then, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we're still paying for yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, the oh number, total number of objects, works of art, and specimens at the Smithsonian is estimated at nearly $157 million. Wow. Uh, 148 million of those are scientific specimens at the National Museum of Natural History. (laughs) National History. National Museum Museum of Natural History. Um, Only 1% of the entire collection at the Smithsonian is on display at any time. Oh, wow. Wow, that's a hell of a number right there. At one point, this was a good one. Do you know who Jimmy Durant was? He was like an actor with like a really big nose back in the 50s. You know, I might recognize him. If he I had a him, huge but... nose. It was like three inches from t- bridge to tip. It's wow. Famously, they called him the Great Schnozzola. Huh. And uh, seeking a uh, publicity opportunity, Durant's uh, Durante's management arranged management arranged for a makeup artist to create a plaster cast of his nose and offer it up to the Smithsonian as a piece of Americana. At the time, Frank Setzler was the museum head of anthropology and was unimpressed. Heavens no, he was quoted as saying, who would want that? The only place we could use that would be in the elephant display. (laughs) So, but they do have, like, death masks of people. I think they have uh, a death mask of maybe Lincoln. Um, Oh, wow. They used to plaster molds of people's faces when they died or whatever. So, 157 million pieces. But, I mean, that includes everything from, like, little tiny bugs to stones to... Right. Gosh, you know, and only... The ruby would, slippers You see, to, 1% is ever on uh, display at one time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, I just found that out. I did, too. Perfect. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it, it's funny. I didn't look up the any guy, Smithsonian The facts. guy that founded... That the Smithsonian is named after, not... I can't remember what his name is. I think his last name is Smithson. <laughs> but he's never been to America. He never was in America in his whole life. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. But he was just a big, uh, I guess, science guy. Right. He, like, donated a lot of and things. And he liked Americans. Yeah. Yep. That happened a lot. So, used to a lot. Used to a lot? <coughs> yeah, they used to like us a lot more, I think. Oh. Uh, so, well, anyways. You know, maybe we'll come back in favor. Never someday. know. You'll never know. You'll find out next week. and <laughs> We'll let you know then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, give us some more listens. We'll tell you how much uh, you like us. Yeah, well, we're going to blackmail you with listens. <laughs> Indeed he do. Indeed he do. So I guess we're moving on to uh, yeah. the featured um, features. Yeah, yeah, the Smithsonian. Our Smithsonian stories. Mine has to do uh, <clears throat> with uh, banned books, but um, more importantly, the very first banned book ever in uh, <laughs> what would become America. This actually happened back uh, in the 1600s. <laughs> so it's about as far back in history as I think I've ever gone on the podcast. Okay. I don't normally do history. But before I get to it, I'm going to do uh, just a little bit of uh, facts about some recent book banning, which is the reason this story even came up when I was looking for Smithsonian stories anyway. 
because uh, I was telling you about that podcast that I discovered. So I was like, well, let's see if Smithsonian has a podcast, and they do, and it's called There's More to That. And that actually came out of Zach's mouth earlier. I said, <laughs> I couldn't think of the name of that podcast, and he said it. And I'm like, I think that's it. And sure enough. That's what I do. <laughs> I help name other podcasts. Right. So, yeah, it's a pretty cool podcast, but they had an episode about the uh, first band book ever because they were talking about band books, and they had uh, some pretty interesting interviews and stuff on there. So let me um, – I've got this uh, – little article from npr um and i'm just going to kind of start and school book bans and restrictions in the u.s rose 33 percent in the last school year so they're talking about um 2023 Uh, according to a new report from the free speech group pen america continuing what it calls a worrisome effort aimed at the suppression of stories and ideas florida had more bans than any other state which I mean, yeah. you and I talk about it all the time. Overall, PEN America said it found 3,362 cases of book bans, up from 2,532 bans in the 2021-2022 school year. So, up by quite a bit. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the organization counts any move that restricts access to a book as a ban, including books removed from classrooms or libraries or both, as well as books temporarily removed while they're being challenged. If you count only the books that have been permanently removed from school libraries and classrooms the report's lead author casey meehan says the increase is even more alarming that number has quadrupled to 1263 books in the last school year from 333 the year before right (laughs) almost a thousand wow yeah um Recent NPR Ipsos polling found that 64% of Americans oppose book bans by school boards and 69% oppose book bans by state lawmakers. But Penn says book banning efforts are being supercharged by local and national coordinated pressure campaigns and by punitive state laws, which are having a chilling effect on teachers and librarians. So, yeah, they don't want (laughs) to carry these books even if they're not banned because it's just bringing unwanted negative attention <laughs> and death threats and stuff like yeah. librarians getting well, death I don't know threats. if you're going to say this but the book bans are basically orchestrated most almost all of them are done by the same 11 people oh right <laughs> 11 people are making most of these they're going like most of these are people that don't live in these school districts they jump from place to place oh right and give the same speech from the same book from the same chapter that only three kids in the whole school have ever read (laughs) that their parents (laughs) let them read yeah you know and it's 11 people so 11 people are making the rules for the other 330 million of us well get this um sorry i didn't want to like no 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 you're good i wasn't i wasn't gonna do that actually no so that's good like that definitely added to it Yes, right. but yeah, I mean, we talk about this stuff. Just right. we're not we're not fans. Just yeah. so you know, <laughs> right, right? We're not right. big supporters, and they're definitely not a sponsor. Book bands, not a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> right, not a sponsor. That's why I'm doing this story. Yeah, not a sponsor. Just under half the books involved deal with violence or physical abuse, including sexual assault. A little less than a third focus on LGBTQ plus identities, and nearly a third include characters of color and themes of race or racism. So the restrictions came disproportionately from Florida, which accounts for more than 40% of book bans in the last school year. Can you believe that? Yeah, you can. I mean, Texas was next with 625, followed by Missouri, Utah, and Pennsylvania. So, um, God. That's not surprising, those two lead the way, those two states. Right, yeah. So, um, yeah, just some some facts there that... uh, yeah 
<laughs> All right. So we're right. definitely not involved with the Smithsonian yet. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. And so um, moving on from those facts, because, you know, they're disturbing, like mainly just because uh, of the increase. Like there's always been book bans and stuff. Not that they're good, but it's like, you know, it's yeah. it's a part of a democracy, really. <laughs> like whatever. Yeah. Like, or it, it is whether you want it to be or not, I guess I should say. But, you know. Usually nothing to worry about, but this sharp increase is like, mm, yeah, hey, mm. over books that people haven't even read, right? Over and things that are just kind of taken out of context in a lot of cases. Sure, I mean, sure, there are some books that probably not all, you know, like you should maybe get permission to get it or something yeah. if you're a kid, but like, yeah, but the school can obviously right. have that. In but it's the about system. having the materials there, having access to it if you if you do want it. What I was mean, the first like, thing you did when you got old enough and you went to the library and looked in the dictionary? You'd look up dirty words. <laughs> right. You weren't using the yeah. dictionary to look up a regular word. Yeah, you learn a lot from the dictionary. You know? Like, <laughs> they're going to have to ban the dictionary because there's right. something questionable. Yeah, in. I should have looked that up to see if the dictionary has ever been banned. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I think a school system in Utah banned the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Bible is uh, definitely on the list of books most often banned, but like, which is surprising. But yeah, yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. Most books need to be on there. I mean, some of them maybe are less surprising than others, but even so. Um, anyway, um, listening to that uh, podcast episode, they had a librarian on there, or the librarian of Congress, uh, Dr. Carla Hayden, and she had a nice quote. Um, which I'll read, not in her voice. Just read in my nice, beautiful voice. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> I saw you waiting. It's really the philosophy of the library profession that free people should read freely and that there's a power in being able to select what you want to read. And sometimes it's essential to be able to have access to different topics, different points of views. And so we really believe strongly that people should have access as much as possible to materials that can help them in life to understand themselves and to understand others. And I think maybe that's the problem people have with books. <laughs> the yeah. people that want to ban them. It's like, I don't want to understand other people. Right. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> like that, uh, forget <clears throat> what lady we were laughing about that said she uh, doesn't know about space and didn't want to know about Candace space. Candace Taylor. <laughs> right. Two S's. <laughs> right. It's like, I mean, well, with that attitude. <laughs> yeah. What know? about these globes? <laughs> globes right. everywhere. It's like, yeah, well, I mean, you know. If you're going to be running for public office and stuff, perhaps you should be interested in something. Right. You know, a little yeah. bit of curiosity. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. All right. So um, a little bit of an intro to what I'm going to do. It is from a Smithsonian Magazine article uh, from this year, October 2nd. Um, I'll, uh, yeah. When the Puritans set sail for New England in 1630, they likened themselves to ancient Israelites settling in the Promised Land. Liberated from the Church of England, which they viewed as too Catholic, they sought to reform the church and establish a new Christian commonwealth guided by their covenant with God. Um, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, John Withrop. Winthrop, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, famously proclaimed, proclaimed on the journey over from England. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. Don't understand a word of that. <laughs> yeah. 
But it was fun to read, i got to say that. <laughs> Just seven years after the Puritans' arrival, an Anglican, Anglican lawyer named Thomas Morton published a book that threatened the young colony and its residents' covenant with God. New English Canaan, a three-part text published in Amsterdam in 1637, is mostly filled with detailed observations about the region's indigenous people and descriptions of plants, animals, and natural resources that could be commodified by white settlers. But a brief section at the end offers a withering critique of the Puritans and the society they were building, including their treatment of Native Americans. So, yeah, let's see. I'm going to read from the... Uh, Which probably wasn't very good treatment of Native Americans. Right, yeah, yeah. This uh, this guy, Thomas Morton, really uh, thought that the way that... Um, basically we weren't working with the native americans at all on on anything you know like we, they were take we were taking advantage of them and he was kind of a businessman and he saw an opportunity to to do business right basically and you know he wasn't really <clears throat> being prejudicial against these people he saw them as a you know people that could help like help them build colonies and right. you know they would colonize these people i mean that's what he was here to do but he kind of had more of a peaceful hippie approach to it <laughs> All right. like almost i feel like almost like a cult like or a commune like approach to it hmm. yeah I lost the uh, thing i had you give me just a second i was gonna read from the title page whatever we'll move on i don't need to worry about that <clears throat> excuse me members of the massachusetts bay colony known to be a tightly controlled society adhered to strict beliefs about how to live and worship ah oh, those puritans women and children were taught to read so they could learn directly from the bible but few other books were imported public entertainment wasn't allowed except for church services cursing was punishable by law despite harsh winters and conflicts with native americans the puritans believed their colony would survive if they obeyed god and they were constantly on the lookout for signs from above so yeah, like you know, witch burnings and stuff. But um, shortly after New English Canaan's publication, the Puritans outlawed the text in their colonies, committing what historians historians consider the first act of book banning in present-day United States. So fewer than twenty-five of the original copies from Amsterdam survive today. But far from disappearing, the book has cropped up continuously over the last four centuries in other works of literature and history. And Morton, who was once ridiculed by other colonists and nicknamed the Lord of Misrule by Plymouth Colony Governor William Bradford, became an anti-authoritarian symbol celebrated for his defiance of Puritan society. So yeah, champion Thomas Morton. <laughs> Is that the salt guy? Maybe. No. <laughs> yeah, he's the, isn't that the, no, that's a, like that's a little, little girl, girl raincoat. raincoat yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right, well, we're just going to talk, right, we're right. going to say the same thing over each other from now on. That should be a fun podcast. Eh? <laughs> we're going to have the exact same script. And we're gonna read yeah, it. See, see how closely we can stay together. Um, Harmonize. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about this Thomas Morton guy and, you know, what, what he was doing coming over to America in the first place. But um, Morton took a three-month exploratory trip to America in 1622, went back to England pretty quickly in 1623, complaining of the intolerance among the ruling elements of the Puritan community. He returned in 1624 as a senior partner in a Crown-sponsored trading venture <clears throat> excuse me, aboard the ship Unity with his associate captain Wollaston and 30 indentured young men. They began trading furs on a spit of land belonging to the Algonquin tribes. And I, I knew I'm going to, we're going to go with Algonquin. <laughs> I have trouble saying that one. Um, I did find a really good article on Atlas Obscura, um, which is how I ended up with my, Hey, I just found this out. 
<laughs> which I think I yeah said it right Either twice way. in the same yeah, episode. Yeah, right. From um, it, the article's called "America's First Band Book Really Ticked Off the Plymouth, Plymouth Puritans." Um, the English businessman Thomas Morton arrived in Massachusetts in 1624 with the Puritans, but he wasn't exactly on board with the strict, insular, and pious society they had hoped to build for themselves. After his uh, partner, Captain Wollaston, left, um, he uh, left with his group of people to go to Virginia to set up shop. Thomas Morton stayed in Massachusetts. That's where he is. All right. Morton enlisted the help of some brave recruits, both English and native, to establish the breakoff settlement of Ma Ray Mount, also known as Marymount, preserved today in the Quincy neighborhood and park of the same name. That's Quincy. Is it Quincy? <clears throat> Quincy. I think that was on the episode recently, wasn't it? I think we talked about it before. Yeah, yeah when we've we talked about it before. Maybe in the Massachusetts episode. Yeah, now that you said that, yeah. It, it is right. spelled yeah. Quincy, but... It is, right. They yeah. say Quincy because they... We have talked says, about that Everything's before. weird everywhere. Well, Sorry. I'll try to pronounce that Quincy. right. I mean, I've mispronounced. I'm tongue-tied and mispronouncing everything. Tonight. Lots of cues in your story I've been doing lots of cues. Morton essentially asked his neighbors, <clears throat> what if we just throw Wollaston out and start our own utopian utopian colony based on plato's republic and also as a society of the native americans it's like yeah so he's that kind of guy explains rhiannon cole a specialist in the books and manuscripts department at christie's in new york the puritan authorities uh the reason uh, the person at christie's in new york is talking about it is because they recently sold a copy of this book okay. we'll get to that the puritan authorities didn't see marymount as a freewheeling <clears throat> annoyance they saw an existential threat the problem wasn't only that Morton was taking goods and commerce away from Plymouth, but that, would, that he was giving that business to the Native Americans, including trading guns to the Algonquins. With Plymouth's monopoly dissolved and its perceived enemies armed, Morton had perhaps done more than anyone else to undermine the Puritan project in Massachusetts. Worse yet, in the words of Plymouth's governor, William Bradford, Morton condoned, quote, dancing and frisking together with the Native Americans, hmm. activities that were banned even without Native American participation. It was basically an early colonial version of Footloose. <laughs> Is that what they well, said? Yeah, that's the that's, article. Oh, yeah. that's not what you said. <laughs> no, no, I wish I had said oh, that. Wow. But, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Getting wild and crazy back if in the 1600s. It, it beeth loose. <laughs> um, Governor Bradford, uh, again, nicknamed Morton the Lord of Misrule, and it's not hard to imagine him wearing that title like a crown. There could be no greater symbol of such misrule than Morton's maypole. Reaching 80 feet into the air, the structure conjured all the vile, virile vices of Merry England that the Puritans had hoped to leave behind. Throughout medieval Europe, maypoles had been a popular installation for May Day, or Pentecost, or Midsummer in some regions encouraging human fertility as the land itself sprung up from winter. Um, Morton really liked the idea of that celebration, and he gladly called upon <clears throat> the residents of Marymount to drink, dance, and frolic around the pole. Um, the establishment had... <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, Puritans saw this as an act of war, basically, and so they were like, no, 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 you're not going to keep doing this. <laughs> you're having too much fun. Yeah, you guys are having too much fun. Like, you're basically you're worshiping the devil. Yeah. So um, <laughs> they, uh, the next year around, uh, they were going to have this festival again on uh, December 6th. And um, is it December 6th? Did I get that right? Did I, I just said that? No, I'm sorry. It's it's in May. <laughs> <laughs> not even close. December 6th was, um, was the uh, guy I just talked about, Futard. Oh, okay. yeah, the the whipping Pearl guy. Harbor, I think, yeah, 
Is that also? Well, all right. Moving. Anyways. Um, so the second year around, a Puritan militia led by Miles Standish invaded Marymount, chopped down the Maypole. Um, this incident later inspired, inspired a story by Nathaniel Hawthorne like two thousand or 200 years later, a short story called The Maypole of Marymount. Um, Morton was tried for supplying arms to the natives and expelled to an island off the coast of New Hampshire to be left for dead. Somehow, he managed to hitch passage on a ship back to England, where he sued the Massachusetts Bay Company. And uh, in looking into them, I realized that uh, at that time, they owned most of what we now know as New Hampshire and uh, Maine. So that was all the uh, Massachusetts Bay Company. So I guess that's why he's suing those folks for leaving him behind. But uh, the trial provided him with the basis for his book, The New English Canaan, much of which was composed at London's Mermaid Tavern with a little help from his friends. He uh, was uh, specifically um, helped by uh, famed poet and playwright Ben Jonson. Um, again, published in 1637, New English Canaan mounted a harsh and heretical critique of Puritan customs and power structures that went far beyond what most New English settle- settlers could accept. So they banned it making it likely the first book explicitly banned in what is now the United States. A first edition of Morton's Tell-All, which, among other things, compares the Puritan leadership to crustaceans, which, I, like, hmm. <laughs> I don't know about that. Crabs. Recently sold at auction um, at Christie's for $60,000. Wow. Yeah, there's like less than 25 copies of it left. So, yeah, 60000 Wow. Yeah, um, from the Christie's listing online, because I went and looked at it, they have it listed. Uh, it says, blending picturesque literary flourish with historical accounts and poetic interludes, this work, composed with help from literary friends at the Mermaid Tavern, including Ben Jonson, is an unremitting satirical attack on the Puritans, as well as a joyous Jacobite romp, telling a lost true story of America's colonial history. Morton particularly denounces the Puritans' policy of land enclosure and genocide of the native population, and ends with a call for the demartializing of the colonies and the creation of a multicultural new Canaan in the New World. Demartializing, from what I could figure out, was like a de uh, de arming, like demilitarizing. Right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Imagine if that hippie had gotten his way, how much (laughs) different things would be. And apparently, like he was, we would be in flying cars, and like sounded like he had quite a following at a certain point in time. Sure. How could you not like that? Yeah. The book was banned in Puritan New England. There's some bibliographical confusion due to ghost records. The work was entered to the London publisher Charles Green in the Stationer's Register on the 18th of November, 1633, but not published until 1637. Several copies with cancel titles reading London for Charles Green are extant. According to Sabin, it's likely that this first edition was actually published in London. I think um, in other reading... I. I think they were trying to make it confusing so that you couldn't figure out where it was published because he knew it was going to be uh, sensational. Right. Like, that was the point, was to, like, well, the, you know. the order of the words in that book was different than the order of the words in the Bible, so that's why they had to ban it. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, it wasn't yeah. the Bible. Because <laughs> yeah, they taught the women and children to read, but only that book. <laughs> right, yep, exactly. So if you see those words anywhere else, you won't understand them combined other ways. Right. You know, just that way. Just that way. And only the, <clears throat> and yeah, don't understand it any other way. But there's an agenda books <laughs> other books um in the uh back to the uh, atlas obscura article uh the uh 
representative from Christie's says she was particularly struck by the nicknames Morton threw at his Puritan foes, whom he called cruel schismatics. It's hard to know who got it worse between Standish and John Endicott, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Endicott is known in the book as Captain Littleworth, Standish as Captain Shrimp. <laughs> Captain Shrimp. <laughs> Even more radical than his belittling appellations were Morton's subversive policy ideas. Oh, uh, well, I, I already said that, which went so far as to recommend demarshalizing the colonies, which, yeah, at the time was pretty, I'm sure, like, what the hell is this guy talking about? I mean, it's still crazy for someone to say that. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. Unsurprisingly, the Puritans were appalled. Um, I've already covered that. It's likely the book scandalized England as well. The book's title page names Amsterdam as the place of publication rather than London, and this is uh, what I was talking about. But that's hard to believe, is that very Amsterdam publisher was in fact a well-known purveyor of Puritan books. Knowles says that Amsterdam was likely listed as a lie to protect the actual publisher in London. Um, after the publication, Morton braved a venture back to his beloved Massachusetts, only to be turned right back around upon arrival. He tried to cross the Atlantic again in 1643 and was this time exiled to Maine, where he died. So, yep. I like that it's exiled to Maine. <laughs> exiled to Maine, which I guess apparently back then they exiled, it sounds like North Korea, they exiled you there to uh, to the farms in Maine. And, yeah, you went to the farms. The farms and the bogs. Yeah. But from the little bit I read about his life there it sounded like you know he fared pretty well and like he died he died at 73 so it's not like you know right. he lived a pretty long life for that time especially yeah. in the 1600s i mean absolutely um but yeah that was a uh, that went a little bit uh that's, that's it that's what it. was the name of the book again it was called a uh, new english canaan c-a-n-a-a-n okay the yeah. settlers of canaan yeah <laughs> well you said that december 6th and i want to i said that was pearl harbor i was wrong that's december 7th I, oh, I knew it I was should, this I week, the anniversary of it was. I should have known, yeah. but... No. You're correct. I've been distracted. Now. I've been distracted. So. <laughs> well, I was telling a different story. So. Well, that's the oldest you've been. Yeah, that's I do have a little back bit in time. more information on the the word Canaan, if you want sure. a little bit there. Yeah, let me. Uh, the name Canaan appears throughout the Bible as a geography associated with the Promised Land. The demonym Canaanites serves as an ethnic catch-all term covering various indigenous populations, both settled and nomadic pastoral groups, throughout the regions of southern Levant or Canaan. It is by far the most frequently used ethnic term in the Bible. Biblical scholar Mark, Mark Smith, citing archaeological findings, suggests that the Israelite culture largely overlapped with and derived from Canaanite culture. In short, Israelite culture was largely Canaanite in nature. So it's still the etymology is uncertain. Um, Wouldn't it be Canaan then instead of Canaan? I've always said it Canaan. I think it's Canaan, yeah. Since yeah. there's a Can what is it, the Canaanites? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Canaan. Canaan Canaan. Canaan O'Brien. <laughs> I I say Canaan cuz the double A thing throws me off. But I've also heard others say Canaan. So I think it's like a Yeah. Wherever you're from. Right. Exactly. Oil, oil oil whatever. Oil or oil. oil. So yeah, that's uh, essentially um it's it's like the promised land in this situation. I think. Right. Like the new English promised land because he's talking about well yeah. they're doing it the wrong way. This is how I would do it. Um, and they didn't like no, that. Right. They didn't like that because it's like, yeah, you guys are violent and stupid. And <laughs> it was uh, Reginald DeSantis was the name of the, the Puritan that was trying to ban these books. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was the DeSantis of the 1600s. So, yeah, first banned book. Been doing it for a long time, so it's not a new thing. But, you know, it's never been a good thing. 
No, yeah. just like if you don't want your kid to read something, don't let them read it. Or don't if you don't want to read something, don't read it. If you don't want to watch right. something, don't watch it. You know. like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't want to buy something at a store, don't buy it. Like, like I've never been anywhere for being forced to buy anything I didn't want to yeah. buy. The book is not going to change your mind. Oh, you're a man in the grocery store. We need you to buy tampons. <laughs> I, I've never been forced to buy tampons, and I don't even like go to the aisle and go, "How dare they sell these? Right. I don't need these. Why should they be in this store that I frequent with everybody else?" <laughs> Indeed. I don't like this book. You can't like this book. It's stupid. No one can like this book. Right. So, yeah. Huh. New English Canaan, Thomas Morton. Look him up. Pretty interesting guy. I'd never heard of him before uh, looking up Smithsonian Try stuff. His salt. Yeah. his salt is delicious. Yeah. Salty. It's very salty. Very salty. Uh, well, so you thought you went old school, and I went farther old school. Did you? Yeah. Well, well that was pretty old school for well, me. sort of, because this is still... I mean, this is in the Smithsonian, so this is specimen number 217868. Oh, nice. Yeah. You've definitely heard of this one, because this is the most valuable piece in the collection, and probably the most famous piece in the entire collection of the Smithsonian. Right. And it's the oldest thing we've ever done on this show. (laughs) So... But before we get there... Well, we don't know where all those UFOs came from. Yeah. (laughs) On November 10th, 1958... All right, Harry Winston, with the persuasion of George Switzer, that name doesn't matter, but <laughs> he sent a box. Harry Winston's the name that matters. He's a jeweler. Okay. Um, he sent a box wrapped in brown paper through registered through registered mail to the Smithsonian. Uh, the address label of this package said just just said the Smithsonian, Washington D.C. Attention, Doctor Leonard Carmichael. So that's I mean. Yeah. The post office knows where the Smithsonian is. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, yeah, they, they got it there. This package was shipped at a cost of one forty-five twenty-nine, and two dollars and forty-four cents of that was for postage. So, I mean, it was a big wow. Package. Yeah, it must have been. Uh, it was insured for a million dollars. Oh wow! So, uh, any idea what's in the box? I have no idea. Well. If we want to find out, we have to start a, bil- a billion years ago. <laughs> All right. And it was formed under immense pressure with carbon atoms forming strong bonds with each other. So it's a diamond. And uh, it combined with uh, trace amounts of boron atoms that were all intermixed, right? And that mixture gave it its famous rare blue color. Huh. Um, weirdly enough, under phosphorescence, or under ultraviolet light, it exhibits a red phosphorescence like this blue thing when it's under ultraviolet light shines like blood red almost gotcha uh which doesn't happen to any other colored gem in the world Hmm. like they've never found any other gem that does this weird so it's aliens for sure yeah so after about a billion years okay fast forward back a billion (laughs) years or so um we go to the 17th century uh, miners in the Kalur mine in Gunter, India, unearthed this stone. And uh, over the years, it's had many owners, many names, and many mysterious events surrounding it. And that leads many be- to believe that it is actually cursed. And the names it's gone by are the Tavernier Blue, the King's Jewel, the French Blue, and the, probably the most famous and infamous name that everybody knows is the Hope Diamond. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. All right. I mean, I so, knew it was a diamond, but yeah, all right. Yeah, so uh, 
1866 in India, this guy, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, who's a French gym merchant. Obviously he, was, obviously, he was French. Hanging out in Fr- France together this week. Yeah. Um, he, he got the largest blue diamond ever found. So this was 1666, right? 1666. Oh, wow. Wow. And this thing weighed 115.28 carats. And that's when it got its first name, the Tavernier Blue. Okay. Now, there's rumors that it was in a a temple in an idol, and there's an eye, and he pried it out. And like, you know, this it's like kinda, Indiana Jones style. Yeah, but, I mean, this guy was, like, a pretty reputable guy. Like, he has a yeah. lot of – he was Indiana a gym trader. This, this guy was a gym trader for a long time and had, like, he was able to go back to these places. So okay. he probably didn't do that. <laughs> oh, right, prying things out of – Yeah, yeah, yeah gotcha. um, I see. Another one. Another story says that the priest took it out and sold it away. Right. Legends and such. Priestly, priestly things. Yeah, priestly things. Um, yeah, we've talked about priests on this show. He too. didn't have any anything in his writings about how he uh, came into having the diamond, but I mean, he probably bought it in some market, yeah. you know. Right. Um, there's stories that say that soon after he obtained the diamond, he became sick with a really bad fever, which he overcame. Ah, uh, the curse. Yeah. Um, but soon after he got it, and I you know, I said maybe he was scared, but more likely he was a French gym merchant trying to make that, that cash. Right. So he, sold, he returned to France, and in 1669, he sold the diamond with a bunch of other gemstones to King Louis Fourteenth. So, oh, I mean, the King king's Louis. like, I want to buy that diamond. He's like, uh, $2 million. And they, sure, <laughs> I'll give it to me. So, it. <laughs> uh, Louis Fourteenth wanted to change the shape of the diamond to a more triangular shape. So, in 1678, he takes it to his jeweler. Two years later, and uh, the diamond was trimmed down to about 69 carats. And now it was in a uh, setting called a cravat pin, which is like a precursor uh, yeah. to a ascot. Yeah, like a little neck it thing. Like it's like 69-carat diamond in yeah. that thing, right? Yeah. Bright blue. And he wore it all the time. I bet. And so that's when it took on the name French Blue. Hmm. Okay, so uh, he wore it for ceremonial events, and obviously everybody was just, Oh, right. your majesty. <laughs> <laughs> or however that's said in French. Your Majesty. Ooh, that diamond ascot. Ooh. Um, one account said, quote, at the diamond's dazzling heart was a sun with seven facets, the sun being Louis' emblem and seven being the number rich, a number rich in meaning in biblical cosmology indicating divinity and spirituality. So the cut is this, this makes it, when it shines from the back, you can see a sun right design in it because he was the sun king right so king life keeps on going on for louis i'm sure it's exhausting yeah i bet it's hard um and in 1715 after his death it was given to his great-grandson who was louis the 15th uh louis the 15th gets it returns it to the jeweler and wants it to be set in a more elaborate pendant which was known as the order of the golden fleece Mm. and this thing is like Order of the Golden Fleece is a Catholic order of chivalry, but this piece of gaudy ass jewelry was like this huge blue diamond surrounded with a 107 carat spindle, which wow. is a, a, a gemstone that's like red, carved like a dragon, 
breathing 83 red painted diamonds and then holding a 112 yellow painted diamonds that were in the shape of a fleece. And this thing is gaudy wow. king shit, right? Yeah. So he got that put in there. And after his death, the piece became the property of uh, his grandson, who was Louis the Sixteenth, who was married to Marie Antoinette. Oh, okay. And Marie Antoinette loved to walk around wearing all the jewels all the time because, you know, she's the queen. Like, whatever, right. I'm wearing jewelry, big expensive stuff, right? But whatever. she probably, yeah, <laughs> I do what I want. She probably never really wore this piece, though, the Order of the, the, order, order of the Golden Fleece. <laughs> she probably never wore it because it was reserved for exclusive use of the king. She probably looked at it. Yeah, uh, right. But she didn't wear it in public or anything. Um, <laughs> whatever. She didn't, she liked to adjust a bunch of jewelry, like change the way that jewelry was made, but she didn't do anything to that. So, okay. At one point in 1787, they took the stone out for a brief scientific stu study, but they kept it all intact in this yeah. Order of the Golden Fleece, right? Uh, in 1789, the royal family, they were living in a place called the Palace of Versailles. I'm sure you heard of it. Yep, yep. And one early morning, an angry mob of Parisian workers, egged on by revolutionaries, stormed the palace yeah. and tried to kill Marie... Uh, and it, I'm sure it had nothing to do with her wearing all this bling around all the time, but yeah. she was associated with a frivolous lifestyle that symbolized what everyone thought about and hated about the monarchy. Yeah. yeah. Um, Frivolity. So this, uh, yeah, definitely. Just like living it up in the people's face, basically. <laughs> um, so this uprising was you know, kind of beat back, and the royal family were brought to the Tuileries Palace in Paris, sure i butchered that too, 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 too. yeah I um and they thought doing this would like since the king was living amongst the people he would be more accountable but at this point you know like i put the beginning of the end was beginning <laughs> um august 10th nice 1792 louis and marie were arrested and one month later the monarchy of france was abolished which led to the first french republic right okay um september 11 1792 which was 10 days before the proclamation of the french republic uh while louis and his family were imprisoned in the square du temple du temple yeah um <laughs> the thieves some Dudes thieves in play yeah yeah there you go thieves broke into a royal storehouse and for five days they were just able to loot this storehouse Wow, it took them five days. <laughs> well, that's how much there was in it, I guess, because they stole most of the French crown jewels. Oh, wow. Uh, mo many of these jewels were later recovered, including pieces of the Order of the Golden Fleece, but the French blue was not recovered, and mm. it had been removed from its dis from its setting, and it disappeared. Well, damn. So then we know what happened to Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. Like, yeah. Got beheaded. Beheadings. Uh, that was during the French Revolution, and that's often blamed on the diamond's curse, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened to the diamond then? Uh, after it was stolen, it was likely swiftly smuggled to London. But because having this easy-to-identify, one-of-a-kind, cursed, beautiful blue diamond <laughs> was probably hard to hide. Indeed. They definitely recut it. So as they know it then, the French blue was never seen again. Um, so during the time in history that was missing, 23.5 carats were removed. Oh. 
just so you know, I I looked up a twenty three point five carat diamond ring, which is about three point five million dollars if you're interested. Oh wow! Okay. So that's what they cut off of this. Um, huh. so there's different thoughts as to why they would have done this from breaking during the recut or being recut to make it harder to identify which is probably more likely mm-hmm. um to pieces being removed to make some extra cash but i'd say you know it's probably a little bit of all of that right you're taking these pieces and selling them off you know <laughs> yeah for real uh so the diamond was nowhere to be found and then in september 1812 it shows up and it's in a diamond merchant named Daniel Ellison, Eliason's uh, possession. And at that point, it weighs 45.4, 5, 4 carats. So 45 and a half carats. So, I mean, it used to weigh 115. Wow. Um, just a few days after the 20-year statute of limitations expired on the theft is when this thing came back into circulation. Huh. So just a couple days after, this guy just happened to have it. So, you know, take... Take wow. what you want to about yeah, that. Definitely waiting. Definitely waiting for it. Which I don't know why you would do it. So when like, that's ours? Like, we can't charge you, but we'll take this back. <laughs> right. But Yeah. So, you know, obviously, there's no curse on that part. He didn't get caught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing bad happened um, there at all. Right. So, there's conflicting reports about the diamond. and But most likely, it was in the possession of King George the Fourth. after that. Um but after he died in 1830, the diamond was sold off to cover his huge debts that he had left behind. It was later reported that the diamond was acquired uh, by a London banker named Thomas Hope. Uh, there we go. Stories that say that he bought it for either 65000 or 90000 And when he got it, he said it in a simple medallion surrounded by many smaller white diamonds, which, I mean, everything's smaller compared to this thing, right? Yeah. And in 1839, in a uh, published catalog of the gem gem collector of, uh, what was his name? Sorry, Thomas Hope, Mm -hmm. in his uh, gem catalog was a picture of it for the first time. So um, the same year that he did that, Henry died. (laughs) So who gets the stone then? So that his his wife and his nephew spent ten years fighting over the gem collection. <laughs> wow! And eventually, the collection was split up. So after all that time, they all just get some of it. <sighs> and uh, what a waste Hen- of time. Henry Thomas Hope gained custody when he basically kept it in a bank vault. Yeah. So, of course. Uh, 1902, the 1902, sorry, the stone now known as the Hope Diamond was sold to a London jewel merchant and it began to change owners many times. Um, at one point it was sold to a, a Turkish sultan named Abdul Hamid and it was bought by a, a guy named Salim Habib which he never really had anything we'll find out <laughs> um, Hope Diamond was then sold to Pierre Cartier who reset it in 1911 and sold it to a woman named Evelyn Walsh McLean and her husband was named Edward McLean the town of McLean Virginia is named after yeah. them they yeah. they or rich as shit because they owned the Washington Post. Oh. Okay, so... Yeah. And, like, a bunch of other newspapers, and apparently he got into some railroad shit and all sorts of stuff. It was one of those types of families. Um, the, it was a difficult process to sell to them because um, the McLeans agreed to buy the piece without knowing about the sketchy history behind it, 
when they find out they tried to back out of the deal. I don't know if that's true mm-hmm. or not. Um, they eventually bought it for about what's nine point four million dollars today in today's money. Oh man! So um, now other people speculate that either they, the, the McLeans, or Cartier himself fabricated the entire curse to generate publicity to increase the value of the stone. But I mean, yeah. um, but Evelyn, this lady was like, she was like the only one that actually seemed to use this thing for anything just but once in a while she'd wear it almost every day she's walking around the house wearing the fucking she was like what's his face the original uh, guy wore it in his cravat yeah yeah but he only wore it in certain events like she was wearing it all the time time. he would only wear it in like ceremonies and stuff she would even give it to the dog to wear and the dog's collar would walk around with the hope diamond right (laughs) um when guests would come over for their uh what i called get out parties uh, she would hide the diamond. She would play hide and seek with the diamond. So wow. she'd hide it, and guests would try to find the, this diamond. And she'd just hide wherever. Interesting. Um, at one point, she showed a friend. She showed her friend a stone, the stone, which she was keeping in her stockings drawers, like wrapped up in stockings in her drawer. Huh. And her friend said, "Evelyn, you're keeping the most famous gemstone in the world in your underpants." And Evelyn responded, my dear, at my age, who's going to look there? So, I mean, you know, like I put in my notes, I said, this rich thing must be absolutely exhausting. (laughs) Indeed. Um, While they owned this, it had security precautions. And this is from the New York Times in 1911. William Schindel, a former Secret Service man, has been engaged to guard the stone. He, in turn, will be guarded by Leo Costello and Simon Blake, or Simeon Blake, private detectives. The stone will be kept at the McLean mansion during the day, and each night will be deposited in a safe deposit vault. When Mrs. McLean wears the gym at balls and receptions, arrangements have been made to keep the safe deposit building open until after the function that the stone may be safely stored away. Hmm. A special automobile has been purchased to convey the guards to and from the house to, to the trust company's building. So, this thing had better security than, like, Jay-Z. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right? Indeed. Um, so Evelyn never sold the diamond, but when she died in 1947, the family had to sell the diamond to pay off their debts because these people just threw money around constantly. Right. Like their their son, when when their son was born, their oldest son, he was called by the the media was called the hundred million dollar baby or something like that. Hmm. In the 1900s. Right, you know? the 1900s. Yeah. Um, so, Harry Winston bought this diamond in 1949 from the McLean family, right? Yeah. And for the next 10 years, he would take it and exhibit it, touring the U.S., and even it even made an appearance on the quiz show The Name's the Same in 1955. Never heard of that quiz show. It was, there was a... Have now. The Name's the Same because there was a girl on there... It was the guest that they were trying to figure out the names uh, the same, gotcha. and her name was Hope Diamond. Huh. Um, great. Brown, <laughs> yeah. Um, at one point during this, like, 10 years, uh, Winston took it off, or had the bottom facet slightly recut to, like, increase brilliance, you know, to make it more popping, I guess. Right, you know, just, yeah. a, just a slight shave, right? <clears throat> Let the light in different. So yeah, that led to led to the to the point that the Hope Diamond was mailed to the Smithsonian in that box, which is also in the Smithsonian's collection. Hmm. Okay. 
It's not like a featured. I wonder if they have thing. the light shining on it so you can see it change colors. The box? No, the diamond. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it shines. I think there's like the box it's in and, and it spins. And so there's lights pointing on it that like uh, yeah. highlight the different it, features. Yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah. I've seen it before when I was a kid, but um, okay. we're going to go see it on our mandate. Yeah, yeah we are going to go. We can see hold hands. <clears throat> definitely going to hold hands. We at should that part. totally do our first TikTok, holding yeah. hands, looking at the. We should just do it all on Segway scooters too. <laughs> I, I thought that was a given. <laughs> um, anyways, so over the years, it's been put in a di- couple different settings, but and it was even at one point just displayed as like a gym by itself. Now it's back in its setting. Huh. Um, and it's insured, reported to be insured by two for two hundred fifty million dollars. You're not stealing that. You, you got a better chance of walking out of there with almost anything else besides that. <laughs> yeah, I'd say you, you know? probably don't have a good chance with much of anything walking right, out I mean, of there. Right? But, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, even even if I were to be able to get the book that was banned, <laughs> right. where am I going to sell that? Yeah, and it didn't sound like they even had a copy of it at the Smithsonian. But uh, I guess you, maybe the Library of Congress does have a copy of it. But, where are you going to find like where are you going to find a buyer for the Hope Diamond? <laughs> right. That's like even close to like not murderous. Anyway, yeah. so. What about the curse, right? Uh, 1911 New York Times article wrote, uh, gave a list of, um, I guess it was written, it wasn't wrote. Wrote. Uh, gave a list of supposed cases of bad fortune to come to previous owners of the diamond. Um, that that thing, that article re- uh, mentioned 14 owners. I've seen as many as 29 different owners. We're not yeah. going through all of them, obviously. <laughs> sounded like it was going to be more than 14 to me, but... Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, many different uh, fates came to those that did own it, from suicides to ruination to imprisonment to murder to just bad luck. Jeez. Uh, many of the stories that are associated with the diamond are questionable because the ownership can't be verified or that there's, you know, two or three degrees of separation between right. the bad thing and the diamond, you know. Well, I owned it, but my friend's neighbor's cousin got hit by a train well that doesn't mean anything right you know? yeah good okay um or not good I so guess. these are most this is most of the people that i brought up in the how it got to the smithsonian right well from the earth to the smithsonian <laughs> right yeah billions of years um, ago and these are probably the most reliable so jean baptiste uh died shortly after selling the stone and was ripped apart by wild dogs <laughs> um so remember back in olden times we've seen this in several stories there's wild dogs everywhere <laughs> Yeah, right. Just everywhere. Yeah, it was a different time. Yeah. Um, that was the story about him. And uh, actually, he died in his 80s while he was in Moscow on a buying trip. Oh. And the dong thing would have shown up in historical records because he was pretty well-known and successful. So that's the first, like, curse right. event. You know, the first owner is the curse against him. You know, right. One story I saw that the the priest that removed the eye from the the idol like that stole it like he was cursed down or something but there's no there's no proof of any of that stuff right. um louis the 14th who you know was the first real owner that did something with it besides just be the gym dealer um he died uh or he as he got older he had abscesses gout boils and an anal fistula and mm. he eventually died from gout um that's Gosh. true that that's absolutely true six of his seven children died before adulthood and uh it he's criticized because his reign didn't do the things that should have that could have possibly prevented the french revolution i don't think that that 
would have worked. It would have eventually happened. Right. Um, this was, he also just happened to be the longest reigning sovereign in the history of the world. So I don't know if there's much of a curse because he served, he was a sovereign for 72 days, 72 years and 110 days. Wow. He became king at four. <laughs> right. right? Um, his medical, his medical ailments were probably linked to the king life. He lived for his whole life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so everybody's kids died that young then too. Like if you had 10 kids, nine of them were going to not be adults. Eight right. of them were not going to be adults, you know? So I, there's no curse on that, right? Yeah. The curse is just... You know. I mean, I don't believe in curses, period, but um, yeah, now this, I'm going to be cursed. But uh, Louis the fifteenth, Louis the sixteenth, and Marie Antoinette uh, were captured and beheaded during the French Revolution. And I'd say that the being beheaded was definitely bad and maybe curse-related. <laughs> but, you know, remember that Marie Antoinette never wore this thing. So why would she have been cursed? She didn't even touch it or anything, you know, right. like, maybe just being around it. Yeah, maybe, I, it maybe it took to I a certain that, kind I of person. I think they were going to probably be beheaded regardless right. of whether or not they ever owned that or not. Agreed. Maybe owning it caused that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, cause they were um, quite wealthy. Right. But, and flaunting yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eliason, the gym merchant that just happened to have the diamond a couple days after the statute of limitations expired. <laughs> right. He lived uh, to be 71 and died peacefully in his sleep. So It doesn't sound cursed to me. Uh, no. During the reign of just 10 years, George IV uh, basically ruined the prestige of the monarchy and was one of the most unpopular monarchs in the history of the United Kingdom. Could be curse-related. Yeah. Uh, he died. Or he spent most of his reign in seclusion, addicted to laudanum and heavily drinking. Oh well. Uh, he became obese, had cataracts, and eventually, di- eventually died from gastrointestinal bleeding. Excuse me. I mean, it sounds like that's all his fault, not so much a curse. Right. Like, um, it was a funny story. They said when he, right before he died, his servants were with him. You know, and apparently he had this gigantic BM. Had a, had a massive BM, and it said that the servants and George said, quote, what is this? This is death. And then, like, <laughs> a little bit later, he died. So, like, he just <laughs> shit his brains out and died. Right. Who knows? But, like you said. BM being bowel movement, yes. for those of you who don't know what a BM yeah. is. <laughs> it, was, it was before they added the W to the car. It was precursor. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, I mean, his lifestyle probably yeah. had more to do with it than any curse. Um, Thomas Hope, nothing really happened to him, but there was the prolonged battle for all of his stuff. Um, the nephew that ended up with it did go bankrupt and had to sell the diamond. So I I think that like bad financial decisions, dumb people blame a curse for any of that Um, stuff. The jewelers that purchased the diamond after, after that overpaid and, uh, that company eventually went bankrupt. They overpaid 10 times what the gym was worth, so I'd assume that they their curse was just being bad business. I was going to say, eventually they went bankrupt, so it says a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus, there's a lot of people that are just throwing around money. They're paying, overpaying. A lot of this is somebody will buy it for what would be today $3 million. Right. And then they'd sell it for a million because they overpaid by $2 million to begin with. Or like one guy paid like twenty million or $12 million in today's money. And then resold. I think it was this Salim Habib sold, bought it for twelve, and sold it for like three. Oh yeah. But um, 
<clears throat> he's buying for a sultan and those people like have like nowadays they have like 40 bugattis like they they don't care about losing right. some money like that um he did have a reputation of losing a lot of money on that but i, I didn't really find anything that happened to him right they like to link that he died in a shipwreck but it wasn't even the same salim habib so i don't know why they would say that it has anything to do with the curse that guy didn't even right. know the diamond existed for all we know um cartier didn't seem to have much bad luck with it um right you know obviously everybody knows the name cartier yeah um and he died at age 86 and uh i said he probably made out better than anyone in the whole story because he made up the curse as a way to jack up the price is what i think yeah absolutely uh, i mean kings and queens are going to pay whatever they don't care socialites right. are, are not going to care but if once you get it and you can like create something people are gonna buy it probably i mean people have paid for like well you can walking just charge sticks. more for they it. got walking sticks that are like have ghosts that are selling right. on ebay for like five thousand dollars yeah. people are full of shit um <laughs> now i think that the worst luck of all of these people was like evelyn and Ed edward because not too long after they uh bought the diamond edward's mother died and that was within a year uh she had warned them about buying it allegedly um, in 1919, their nine-year-old son was killed in a car accident, the $100 million baby or whatever. And that basically destroyed their marriage, and she went into basically getting addicted to morphine. And yeah. um, Edward left for another woman, and she couldn't get divorced from him. Evelyn couldn't get divorced from him, so she had him declared mentally insane. And by the end of his life, he was in a mental hospital. Hmm. So... Um, during this whole time they were these same kind they were people who were throwing money around that's when the washington post went bankrupt so they squandered away all the money they had because they were just throwing the money around and after the after she died the family had to sell off the diamond so um she did find her 25 year old daughter dead on an accidental do overdose on sleeping pills but i mean that, that all that kind of stuff happened in over like 20 years so yeah, I mean, it's just life, man. Yeah, like it's 20 a 20-year period. Right. You know, I, I said, everyone knows that nothing bad can happen to you in 20 years' time. <laughs> right. It's like, that's just all the bad shit that right. happened to you. Right. I mean, um, it's not a curse. <laughs> right. Yeah, Harry Winston, the man that donated the diamond to the Smithsonian, he died at 83 and had a very successful company. So I guess he was curse-free Harry. You know? <laughs> yeah, they're all curse-free. Um, <laughs> so there's a story about the mailman that delivered the package and he was named james todd and soon after the delivery he crushed or broke his leg i've seen both which are two very differing things yeah. um was later in a car accident he had his house burnt down and his dog had been strangled to death um this was right after it, 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 I, I said that's interesting that he just delivered it and other people owned it, and Warren didn't have anything happen to them. Anything bad happened to them, they owned it. But he, like, just held the box, and all this stuff happened. Well, this story was reported on by uh, Ripley's, believe it or not. So, you know, <laughs> take it. Um, the Hope Diamond's only left the museum a couple of times for other showcases, and uh, now the curse is over. Or is it? Um a lead cast of the french blue and a detailed drawn diagram of the order of the golden fleece were studied so they make lead casts of the the cut so it's like a 
a receipt of the cut because every right. diamond was cut would be cut a little different and no matter what just so that it was like a map of the cut right so they found a lead cast of that the french blue and there's an accurate diagram of the golden fleece and then they put in this computer cad program and it determined and uh this was in 2010 i think it determined that the hope diamond was in fact cut from the french blue but they've never been able to find the missing 23 and a half carats huh yeah, they're all divided amongst the world yeah or point. just dust at yeah. this point i've been trained the bottom down. of the ocean even who knows maybe in some guy's butt yeah know, a some ufo somewhere uh so you know that's the hope diamond i'd say the only curse in the whole thing is if you have money if you have the money to buy the hope diamond then uh you have no restrictions of on your spending. You have pretty good odds of actually being bad with money and being say, bad with super big diamonds. Sounds like so. your curse is just being wealthy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is. The, but I mean, it's kind of a good story to like. There's a curse following this diamond. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, definitely a good story. But if you've never seen it, it's pretty amazing to see. I mean, it's just a big diamond, but it's just, yeah, it's really pretty. Well, after hearing the story, definitely excited to see it. We're gonna totally. To hold we're gonna hands. be like Laverne and Shirley, like yeah. with our hands on our on our hands. <laughs> right. Like I don't think you could do that on the case. That you probably can't get close to it. <laughs> you could do like a little choreographed thing though, just dance just around some, in front some, of it or like, something. We gotta find like some seventy-five-year-old person to film it, so like it'll <laughs> right. be really badly done. <laughs> that customer of mine. There Doris you go, Rosen. There you go. <laughs> so that's the uh, Hope Diamond. That's uh, yeah, good times. Well, wow, that was our Smithsonian this, episode. Our Smithsonian, like, that's our warm-up for our bro, yeah. brocation. 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 Yeah. We're going to go see <laughs> America's team play Washington Commanders. The Commanders. Um, and we're going to meet all the team, and we're going to meet all the players, yeah. and, like, the new owners and everything. <laughs> it's going to be great. Right. We're going to be doing a live broadcast from the 50-yard line <laughs> at halftime. <laughs> We just right. wanted to let you guys tell that. <laughs> just let you know. We made it. We made it. So, anyways. Yeah. So, that was fun. I think. I had a blast. Good. I'm glad you did. I hope you guys did, too. <laughs> um, yeah, me, too. Go on uh, organdonor.gov and get rid of your, your organs. Blast away the innards. You don't Blast need that. away the innards. Unless you have an anal fistula, and then you probably don't want to <laughs> don't want to do that. A fistula. A fistula. Anyway, so fistula oblongata. Well, thanks for checking us out. We appreciate all the great <laughs> comments Chris has made. Yeah, this yeah. Episode. I've had a I've had a hell of a night. I and uh, remember, to if you're uh, ever in Anaheim and decide to take off your pants clean your butt how about don't decide to take off your pants yeah i mean i can't make those decisions but at least if you're going to streak anywhere really yeah clean your ass do it without the streak yeah yeah no streaks <laughs> while you're streaking there we go that's a good uh yeah it's a good life lesson I think. <laughs> yeah absolutely if you're going to streak avoid yeah. the streak and you know what a good spot to end on <laughs> right. bye, bye.